I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the refugee crisis that's happening in Ukraine and surrounding countries, we have with us Ann Lee, who is the chief executive officer of CORE, Community Organized Relief Effort. Many of you will know this organization very well because Sean Penn co-founded it, and they've done a lot in Haiti, and they're now doing a lot in Poland and Romania. And welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for sharing your time today. Of course. Thanks for having me. So, Anne, let me ask you, what are you guys up to in Ukraine? What are you doing to help? Right now, we're focused on a three-pronged strategy. The first being support to refugees outside, essentially through working with the different municipalities and cities. So we're in Zhezhov, in Krakow, as well as in Romania. In those areas, we're working with a lot of basically private sector and individuals who kind of stepped up to the plate during this crisis, opened their doors with zero experience in providing support to refugees. That could be anywhere from private homes to hotels to folks who ended up taking over you know, municipal buildings, for example, and really supporting these this local homegrown response to kind of organize themselves, as well as provide them with the material support, as well as the technical support to better support these refugees. On the city side, we're doing a lot of work around taking over their volunteers who've done the reception at the train stations to kind of help folks who are coming through to find where to go, to find those shelters that are supported by the municipality and have access to resources. And then finally, we have a huge warehouse that is supplying a large number of these shelters with basic materials on a rolling basis and also providing somewhat of a store. We call it the gift store or a gift shop. So it allows folks to come in whenever they want, try on clothes, try on shoes, pull things that are needed, everything from toothpaste, toothbrushes and shampoo and soap and so on and so forth, baby materials and such so that they feel that they have the agency of what they're choosing and that they're not giving handouts. So it's a lot of these materials that we are providing support to and access to for these refugees. On another level, we are working in Ukraine. There's a huge amount of need in the Eastern Front, as you can imagine, and huge, massive amounts of IDPs that are in the country. In the same way, we're supporting these clusters of folk with materials whether it's water, bedding, shoes, what have you. We get requests from our local partners that are in these cities, and then we start filling them out. We have several shipments per week. Essentially, we use Bucharest as well as our cities in Poland as our major hubs to go in and support these groups. And then finally, we have a program that we've launched with MasterCard to do cash programming. That's predominantly in Poland, but we are looking at expanding within Ukraine. Because it's a unique situation there, as you can imagine, you have a country at war and, you know, the country right next to it, the the markets are fully functional. In these border cities, it's like life is normal. There's music, everyone's outside and amazing restaurants and fully functional systems. So it's really trying to provide some integration for these individuals into that regular life as much as possible, because we do see this as a longer term crisis. 
Yeah, I can see why that would be so important since a lot of the displaced people are really there for the long haul, maybe for quite a long haul. I mean, it's not exactly like they can go back to their houses and apartments that have been destroyed. That's correct. And what's interesting is that we're seeing a lot of return migration already. So, you know, initially we were seeing 200,000 people, all these huge numbers of folk that were coming through to, to Poland. Now we're seeing the opposite. People are going back home to the Western side where it seems like things are relatively safe, minus the recent bombing in Lviv. But essentially, you know, folks that we spoke to crossing back in, a lot of them were elderly, did not want to be in a country where they didn't speak the language, where they have to start over. They felt more comfortable back at home. So a lot of them are going back into country, not necessarily where they came from, but in Western cities that are relatively safer. So, Anne, the cash assistance is designed to really give displaced people some dignity, right? I mean, you mentioned before agency, so they can mm -hmm. make choices for themselves and their families and not feel like they're just constantly being given something. Is that really the gist of it? Yes, that's essentially it. And we feel really strongly that this program could also be used for the populations that are receiving the Ukrainian refugees. You know, a lot of times, as, as you know, in some of these crises, the receiving communities, you know, initially have very, very supportive open arm policies. But after some time, like with anyone, you know, mother-in-law staying too long, it gets a little tiring. So if we don't address some of the inequalities even within Poland and support these host communities that are opening their doors so that they are able to absorb these refugees, then frustrations start bubbling up. We see this every time in displacement situations. So we want to cut that off early on. So right now we are doing cash programming for the refugees exclusively. But in the next three to six months, we are going to be working with the municipalities to look at host communities that are in need of also support to continue keeping their doors open for those folks. And every crisis is different and every crisis needs its own sort of relief. Why did you and Sean Penn start this organization in 2010? It's such a great question because it's one of these things that really came after so many years, at least on my end, working in the traditional aid system. I worked with a large $250 million organization, then moved on to the UN. It's basically part of like a very large aid system. And when I was in Haiti and the earthquake hit, it just did not function at all. It was a complex urban crisis, and we were using a system that was built out of more rural crises built in the 1950s. And so there's an absolute mismatch in how the system is to how people need things and where they need things. And it was quite frustrating. Meeting Sean was a huge turning point for me. Here was this outsider who I had no faith in initially when I, I met him. I was thinking he's going to be here, take photos and leave. He ended up there in the camp that he was running for about nine months, living in a tent. And I had been living in Haiti by that time for about four years. And then the earthquake hit. So seeing him really sort of doing the work and kind of getting the space was really interesting. So we became friends and we started working together. And it was so refreshing to have this sense of sort of don't just accept things because that's the way that they are. Let's push the envelope and let's be realistic about what we should be doing rather than what is done normally. 
And that kind of really reinvigorated my interest in, in continuing to work in the space, you know, after having come from so many traditional organizations. So in 2015-16, while I was working with the UN, he had asked me to come on board. And that was quite exciting because it was, you know, with this brash sort of don't take no for an answer, kick down the doors if you have to type of personality that I felt like, you know, I was craving for in this space. And since then, it's been that way. I think that we have a very unique space to have some more freedom than what I've ever had in any other traditional organization. And to kind of forge our own space, you know, we don't have a lot of funding, but we have a lot of agency and that makes it worth it. And what I always tell the team is if we continue to do the things that are right, that we know that are right, the money will come. And so far it's been true. So how hard is it operating in this crisis with Ukraine? I mean, is it unprecedented in your experience and the amount of people fleeing and being displaced? I wouldn't say it's unprecedented. I think the piece that feels unprecedented is the amount of international support and desire and willingness to get involved. I mean, that is, it's very overwhelming. Also, just seeing the folks on the ground, the different, every single person doing their piece to support is just incredible. And it's not just like, oh, where can I give money? It's where can I volunteer? Can I open my doors to to host people? I mean, in this one conversation that we had actually at a, at a press conference when we were signing with the mayor of Zhezhov, a Spanish family had come from the coast, west coast of Spain that said, we have a home. We came here to bring a, home, a family back with us. You know, it was like, we kept seeing that. Which it's is incredible. Great. It's incredible. The the amount of willingness and desire for people to get involved. That's what's unprecedented to me. But I don't think that the number is unfortunately in our era, it's not unique. So you've got people over there. How long do you expect to be there? Are you going to be there as long as this is a crisis? Do you believe that you guys are really in it for the long haul? We are. We feel really strongly that this is going to be a multi-year crisis. And we look at disasters and emergencies and crises as sort of the tip of the spear. You know, a lot of these things happen because there's underlying issues and the folks that suffer the most from these crises have been marginalized. There's a lot of structural issues that create greater risks and greater vulnerabilities for different groups. So for us, we kind of look at these crises and the emergency phase to it as a tip of the spear, get materials in, kind of stabilize as quickly as possible. But then really our interest and focus is how do we continue to safeguard or strengthen these communities from either falling deeper into negative situations or constantly just being bombarded with the same type of crisis. So in this particular case, what we're seeing is, is that there's a huge amount of constant displacement. Families are right now being displaced several times and probably will be, depending on how the war affects different parts of the country. We know that right now food, material, health, water, those things are critically important. But shelter is going to be one of the biggest issues that we have to figure out. With so many people displaced and staying in these temporary sort of spontaneous shelters, we can't expect people to be there for six months to a year. A lot of these shelters are being held in schools, gymnasiums, hotels, you know, places that if there is a modicum of normalcy need to get back up and running again. 
And we need to be thinking of different spaces for these folk to lodge in more sustainably. In Poland, it's the same thing, as well as it is in Romania. How do we get people integrated into Poland? And what's been phenomenally incredible, this is where it's unprecedented to have municipalities and mayors that are so incredibly progressive enough to say, work visas immediately. You can stay here as long as you can. We need to integrate you with Polish kids immediately into schools, as well as healthcare centers that serve both populations to try to create that integration as quickly as possible. Let's bring on anybody who has healthcare experience to also serve in those spaces, looking at job creation. We're talking to the mayor right now of Krakow to renovate some old spaces that are being unused that are owned by the municipality, old office spaces into longer term lodging. So it's these types of things that I think is really not the norm in a lot of these situations. Again, it's such an open and very progressive approach to looking at how to host refugees, and it's very refreshing. So Anne, what is it that the Ukrainians need the most right now? I'll tell you what, whenever we ask that of our partners, as a, of course, a humanitarian organization, we provide non-lethal aid. But a lot of the requests that we normally get are we need some hardcore body armor, level four body armor, a lot of medication and sort of emergency triaging medical gear that's very focused on the front. Those are the two big things that we get requested a lot. And of course, the thing that we hear from the government all the time is we need more military aid. Humanitarian organizations as well, you know, they also need body armor. That's what they ask for. What we provide is the food, the basic materials, and it changes all the time. You know, sometimes it's we need bedding, so we'll send bedding. Our last shipment, I think, was baby formula, diapers, and baby gear. The one before that, there was a huge amount of like just tin cups and tin plates that were needed. You know, so it's constant shift and a constant sort of shifting needs of, but it's basic, basic goods. Yeah, it really sounds like they need everything. And when you're talking about tin cups and plates, I mean, my gosh. Yeah, I think that displacement is happening a lot in terms of just internally folks moving to where they feel safer and kind of incrementally moving further away, depending on how things are going. So with that comes a lot of need. Hygiene kits as well. That's a huge one. And that's something that we've been producing on the thousands per week to ship out to partners shampoo, conditioner, soap, toothpaste, that kind of stuff. How does it get directly to the refugees once it's shipped over there? So we have a network of partners, of local partners. Again, a lot of these local organizations were not doing this, obviously. you know, One is a women's rights organization that was doing advocacy around those issues. So, so many of these organizations have completely shifted their mission towards the distribution of humanitarian aid when they never had done this before. But it's been incredible to see how quickly people have been able to pivot. I mean, Ukrainians are really made of sturdy and incredible stuff. What do you think the next phase of this is going to be? I mean, you're doing hygiene kits now. Obviously, that's going to be a constant need, especially with people on the move. What do you think the next big thing is going to be for the refugees there that you all can help with? We think it's going to be the housing, more durable housing more sustainable housing, safer housing, as well as getting some modicum of economic activity 
to continue, whether it's ensuring that farmers have seeds to grow, ensuring that businesses that are still able to run are still running. Again, these are in the huge swath of the country that is still fully functional. If you go to parts of the West, you know, people are out there having coffee and basking in the sun and going to church and having a normal life as best they can alongside the air raids and such. But as much as possible, getting those businesses and continuing to support them so that people have jobs, people continue to go to school and have some normalcy as much as possible. But again, with those folks that are displaced, try to get them into a space where it's not 400 people to a gymnasium. And this is really important work that you're doing. How can us ordinary folks help you do your work? I think the big thing that we feel so strongly about is advocacy to our local representatives. We need to do more. And what's quite frustrating is the humanitarian system and the big bureaucratic agencies aren't equipped to be able to support these little small groups that are doing all this incredible work on the ground. I think really donating to these smaller groups, doing some research. Of course, we funnel money to them. So supporting us is huge. You know, we have text to give, go to poorresponse.org. But really, I think it's two things. I think one is we need to be more vocal about our role in this war. I think that we have a huge amount of responsibility right now, given the the placement of this war and the larger geopolitics with Russia and even with China. And then secondly, making sure that we don't lose sight of how important this war is to the rest of the countries that value democracy. A lot of times in the next you know, three to six months, we're going to see a huge waning of interest as we do. But it is now and in these next months that we really need to continue to start supporting and looking at these longer term solutions, whether it's reconstruction, whether it's investing in longer term housing. Those are the things that are much more expensive, much more durable, but all the more important. And thank you for all the work that you and CORE are doing. And thanks for coming on the program today to help us better understand what the situation actually is there. No, thank you so much for giving us a space and an opportunity to just give our little glimpse of what's going on. Thanks again. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 